Good afternoon, everybody. This is another edition of the Pastoral Show brought to you by JohnPL.com as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. I hope everybody is enjoying the new year. Obviously, there's a lot of rhetoric that's involved with that. You know, people say, hey, there's a new opportunity to do different things. My best suggestion for anybody that does want to make a change, any sort of change in a positive way, just go and do it. You don't have to broadcast it, you don't, it. just go and do it. Uh, there's many different ways that we could do things to improve ourselves and improve our situation. And the best way to do it is just do it. You don't need to tell anybody you're going to do it. You don't have to make a declaration. You don't have to have a deadline that starts that says from this point forward, I'm going to do this. If it means that much to you, if you are that interested in making any sort of change or pursuing anything it is that you want to do, just go and do it and let the actions behind it back up what it is that you could say. But Happy New Year to everybody. A couple different things we're going to touch on today. We're going to talk a little baseball. We'll talk a little football. Always want to throw it out there. Anybody interested, you want to be part of the show, you can comment on either the Periscope or the Facebook Live feed. You can also give the show a call if you want. Number 732-364-3598. Um, the goal, obviously, we're going to continue to build on what was a very good year for the past ball show. We're going to do some uh, offline interviews, which we're going to put up on SoundCloud. We'll put them up on JohnPielli.com, and we'll continue to get the word out about the different stuff that we're doing, the interaction with the show, and the whole thing. But first thing we got to address, obviously, the last of the coaching changes in the National Football League, and you call it Black Monday for a reason, and you know, the way it worked out with the schedule and obviously, you know, Christmas, New Year's, the way the days for particular holidays could just vary. It could be on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whatever. And it ends up Monday on New Year's Eve being a, a very, very bad day for a lot of NFL head coaches. And it wasn't a surprise. A lot of them were expected to lose their jobs. And it, it pretty much happens every year. And one thing that I'm noticing with the National Football League is that teams are really having less and less patience with the coach that seems to be running their organization. And I've always talked about the difference and the importance of a pro football head coach and how that compares to, let's say, baseball. Baseball, a lot of the power has been taken away from the manager. So you almost can't hold the manager to the same standards, the same uh, same set of guidelines as you did 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. It's changed a lot. But football, you're bringing in a coach that has a philosophy. You have a coach that is bringing in his assistants. You have a coach that really has more of an ability to change the plan of a franchise that may not necessarily have been going right for the last couple of years. And you saw it happen Eight different coaches, really, from the end of the season to now, or the midseason to now, if you're including Hugh Jackson in Cleveland and Mike McCarthy in Green Bay, end up losing their jobs. You're talking about a quarter of the league deciding that they're going to switch their head coaches. It's obviously not new. It happens. It's something very common, and that's why it's known as Black Monday. The unfortunate thing is, is that you see in some cases, whether it's a Steve Wilkes in Arizona only getting one season, the situation in Miami, Adam Gase only getting three seasons. So you're finding that the amount of time that coaches are being given to turn around a respective franchise is getting shorter and shorter. 
And obviously, you look at some situations, whether it was Hugh Jackson in Cleveland, where you felt for a series of years that it, you know, after you go 0 and 16 or after you go 1 and 15, maybe you should start thinking about changing a coach. It didn't happen until this year where the Cleveland Browns were sitting here at 2 5 and 1 after the 0 and 16 season and after the 1 and 15 season that was before that. Marvin Lewis, 16 years in Cincinnati. Yes, he helped rebuild that franchise, make them at least the team that wasn't a laughing stock of the National Football League. But in 16 years, did he win a playoff game? No. 16 years, did he get a team close enough to get to the Super Bowl? No. So you figure, in that case, all right, it's about time. The time is probably overdue. But I'm going to make a correlation between this and something that I have spoken about. And if you followed the show a couple weeks ago, we were talking about managers in Major League Baseball. And Jackie Robinson in 1972, the last speech that he made or his last public appearance before his death nine days later in October of 1972, he spoke about the need for Major League Baseball to wake up and start having African-American managers, something they had not done at that point. Three years later, 1975, Frank Robinson, no relation, of course, to Jackie, becomes the first African-American manager in Major League Baseball. The NFL, coming into this year, had seven head coaches, seven black head coaches. Now, Hugh Jackson lost his job, and individually, you would figure Hugh Jackson probably deserved to lose his job based off of results. It's a results-oriented business. You could be the nicest guy. You could be the greatest innovator when it comes to sports, and the Cleveland Browns of the franchise would know. They decided to fire Bill Belichick as their head coach. You know why? Not because Bill Belichick wasn't a great innovator, not because he wasn't going to be a tremendous head coach and a Hall of Famer down the road, but because he wasn't generating wins in Cleveland. So that's, if you're holding the coaches to the same standard, then you understand why Hugh Jackson lost his job. But Marvin Lewis, probably, if you're the Cincinnati Bengals, you should have gone to a change a little bit sooner. But you add Vance Joseph and Todd Bowles and Steve Wilkes to the list of different head coaches that lost their job, and you realize that five of the seven black head coaches in the National Football League have lost their job leaving just Mike Tomlin of Pittsburgh and Anthony Lynn of the Los Angeles Chargers as the only black coaches in the National Football League. Obviously, the NFL didn't get together with their owners and collude and say that it's time to start taking black head coaches and not you know, removing them from their jobs. Obviously, it was never an issue. Obviously, race was not impacted in every single one of these hirings, but you got to admit it's something that looks bad in a, in a league that, listen, no matter what, when you talk about the world of sports, no matter what, when you talk about people in this world, race is always going to be a topic that's brought up. And obviously there is, it's just a pure coincidence that the NFL goes from seven black head coaches down to two in a matter of moments or a matter of a couple weeks. But it's a narrative that could continue to be pushed because of, hey, perhaps an unfortunate set of situations and standards. Now you could go individually through each one of these teams and the majority of them deserve to, to probably move on from their head coach. The New York Jets and Todd Bowles, four years. It's not working out. The Jets haven't gotten 
very, very, very much better. You're looking at the amount of cap money that they have coming off the books, the chance to have a number three pick overall in the draft, potentially addressing a series of needs. They decided it was time to move on from a coach. Denver, you know, Vance Joseph, a couple of years there. He wasn't there that long. And you could probably be just as critical of general manager John Elway as you could be for the coach for this past season. He's the one that brought in Case Keenum. There's other things that they could have done to make their team better. They had a great defense that not that long ago won itself a Super Bowl. Handful of players still on that team. Bradley Chubb, their first overall draft pick. A powerful, power rushing defensive lineman. So there was ways they could have improved their team and they made some bad decisions. That's not all on a coach. And obviously when it comes down to coaching changes in the National Football League, it's common. You know that's going to happen. But it's a it's amazing to see that the amount of time that a coach has. Because think about it. It's not like you're a, ma- a manager in Major League Baseball. You get the job, you probably have some input on the coaches that you bring in. Maybe if there's somebody you, you look up to or you consider as part of your staff. I always think of Billy Martin when it comes to Major League Baseball managers because every time he was getting ready to manage the New York Yankees, he'd always you know, call his guys. Art Fowler was his pitching coach. And the other guys that were really close to him and assembling his staff. Rex Ryan, you heard about the possibility. And I don't know if it was some media blowhard just trying to get it out there, maybe to get his name behind it in case there was any traction to it. But there was reports that Rex Ryan was calling people for his staff, you know, calling assistants and saying, hey, we're going to assemble our team. I think of Anchorman and Ron Burgundy. Ron Burgundy can't go anywhere without his news team. News team assemble. And so you know that's a big factor in the National Football League when a head coach comes in. you got to bring in your assistants. you got to you got a whole staff that you're going to end up bringing in there. So my issue that I've had is that that's something that should come with a little bit of a term. One year in Arizona with Steve Wilkes is not long enough. And you could say things didn't work out there. You could say things uh, got the impression that they weren't going to get any better. You got a rookie quarterback in Josh Rosen. But you have a team that really was not expected to be any good this past year. It's not like Steve Wilkes inherited a prohibited favorite when it comes to the NFC West. You still have the Rams who are coming off a big season. Seattle took some big strides this year. And even had a story to San Francisco 49ers who just picked up Jimmy Garoppolo. Big things were expected out of them this year. Obviously, him getting hurt with you know joining the ACL list and missing the rest of the season impacted the 49ers' chances. But nobody... Not even the people that were hoping to win a buck on a futures bet in Las Vegas or New Jersey were not going to invest in the Arizona Cardinals of last season. So you can say, hey, maybe there's something internally that was going on. Maybe there was a rift in the coaching staff, a rift with the players. Maybe there was a disconnect between the general manager and the head coach. But a coach gets hired, he brings in his staff, not only that, but brings in a philosophy. He's going to bring in an offensive and a defensive scheme and have people that are going to incorporate those schemes to those different players that they have. And obviously the roster shaping comes in. You may have a general manager that has 100% influence on it, but sure is going to hear out the coach, may not hear him out about specific players, but certainly is going to hear and listen and be interested enough in the scheme on the offense and the defense when the coach comes in. 
And you got a coach that comes in for one season. And after one season, doesn't get the opportunity to even come back and do anything about it. Is not good for the coach, but also isn't good for the organization. And let's be serious. When you talk about NFL teams that are in turmoil or NFL teams that are having a hard time getting to the playoffs or their playoff appearances are few and far between. And when it comes to the list of possibilities, when it comes to winning Super Bowls year after year and the same teams are not even being brought up, it's because of a lack of cohesion. And it's not a coincidence that those same teams are always looking for a new head coach. And I'll keep it local for a second when it comes to the Jets. It's not like the Jets have ever really stuck around with one coach for a very long time. You can make the case that it was time for Todd Bowles to go. Prior to that, you could say it was probably time for Rex Ryan to go. But when was the last Jets coach that really got his opportunity to run that team from the field and from the sideline for a long time? Hasn't happened too often. And you look at a team like the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I understand the Steelers didn't make the playoffs. A lot of people are Steelers fans all across the country, one of the more national teams in all professional sports. A lot of fans are probably pissed off that the Steelers missed the playoffs. And I'm sure amongst the list there's some people, some fans, that are saying, hey, maybe it's time to move on from Mike Tomlin. The Pittsburgh Steelers have had three coaches since 1969. They've also won, how many was it, six Super Bowls? So is, is, if you're looking for a philosophy, maybe it should be to stick around with the same head coach for a little while. And you talk about personnel, which I'll touch on in a little bit, but you, know, you want to have a system. Think about how the pro football game compares to the game of college. You have a, a lot of times, you look at a guy like Nick Saban with Alabama, the amount of success that he has had over there. Obviously, you think of Alabama, if you're a high school player getting ready to go to college, potentially potentially grabbing your next scholarship or thinking about where you want to play football, there's Nick Saban being part of Alabama. And if you're going to join the Pittsburgh Steelers in the National Football League, you're thinking of Mike Tomlin and his impact on that franchise. If you're going to go to the New England Patriots and play football for Bill Belichick, you know he's going to be there. So it's going to be about playing for Bill Belichick. A lot of these teams, and I'm going to go after Arizona for a second, because they just moved on from their head coach last year. They're going to now have three head coaches in three years. So if you're a free agent or if you're a rookie coming into getting ready for the NFL draft, wondering if the Arizona Cardinals are going to draft you, you're certainly going to have issues with the way that that team is operating. Three head coaches in three seasons. You look at the amount of offensive coordinators the New York Jets have had over the last series of years. How is that going to be for a player that has been there for four or five years? To every year have to change. Sometimes it's about cohesion. And when we talk about cohesion, we keep it in sports when it comes to players. But sometimes in the NFL, it's about the coaching staff. It's about an identity, and it's about an organizational belief in one particular voice, or a series of voices, but led by one particular voice. And there's no coincidence that teams that end up winning Super Bowls in the NFL have coaches that are going to be there for a while, and may be there for a while because they won a Super Bowl, but also 
are there in years that the teams don't make the playoffs and don't feel like it's so interesting and so important to have to make a change. Just a reminder that this copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for your entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging mission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So I wanted to talk about, I think it was uh, a guy by the name of Grant that was covering the Texas Rangers, gets a Hall of Fame vote, and he decides to include Michael Young as one of the 10 players that he voted for in his Hall of Fame vote. And obviously, listen, I'm not going to get into my narrative when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame and the voting process and whatever. I'll leave that for another day. I'll leave that. If you want to hear me blab about that, go to one of my previous shows where I've waxed poetically and unpoetically about it, probably both getting some good reviews and some people pissed off at me to a point where they're never going to speak to me again. That being said, the token Hall of Fame vote when it comes to a guy like Michael Young or a guy like Miguel Tejada or somebody may want to down the road give a token Hall of Fame vote for somebody like a Bartolo Colon. And we got to do a separation between players that you could argue that their careers could have been good enough, but you understand the strength of the players that are on the ballot. And you want to say, if you have 10 votes for players in the Hall of Fame, that you'd want to feel that all 10 of the players that you're voting for are, for some reason, on the same level. Or at least within a striking distance or a striking shot of each other. You don't want to have one player that's on the level of a Babe Ruth and another player that's on the level of a Babe Dahlgren. Or... You know, one player that's up there on a Joey Votto level. And then the next guy you're thinking about is Todd Benzinger. Meaning, understand kind of the comparison that I'm making. One player is on the level of a Cy Young. And then the other player happened to play for a little while. And it happens to be Jesse Orozco. We would hope that if you have 10 votes and you want to make sure that every vote is going to be worthwhile... They want the players to be on the same level. And if you put out a ballot that has the likes of a Barry Bonds or a Roger Clemens, you know, you obviously are not looking at steroids as being something that is going to prohibit a player from getting into the Hall of Fame. But then you got the likes of, as we hit the halfway point here of the passball show, the likes of a Mariano Rivera and an Edgar Martinez and a Mike Messina and even a Roy Halladay. You're obviously looking for some of the better players in the generations that proceeded. And that's what it should be about. Baseball should be about honoring the best players to ever play this game. But like I said, I'm tabling that discussion for now. Right now, I'm talking about token Hall of Famers. In other words, that writer that had a chance to spend a lot of time with a player for years, understood how hard he worked, understand how important of a role he played for his team, whether they ended up winning World Series or not winning World Series or having success down the road, but import, most importantly, was a good team leader, was a good representation of that franchise. I look at David Wright for this reason. 
He's not going to get into baseball's Hall of Fame. Nobody's going to consider him a legitimate Hall of Fame candidate. You could have that discussion of could he have been a Hall of Famer if he stayed healthy. But I would respect a New York sports writer that when David Wright became eligible to be voted into the Hall of Fame, that writer that would give him that token vote understand that maybe out of 400 or 500 writers, it may be the only vote that that player got, but it's a respect to the way that he played the game. I'm okay with that. A lot of people aren't. A lot of people are bothered by that. A lot of people think that it's a waste of a vote. And I don't think it's a waste of a vote by any stretch of the imagination. It, you could say, hey, there's 10 more deserving candidates than Michael Young, or 10 more deserving candidates as Miguel Tejada. You might be right about that, but the only way to change that is to take those players and say, hey, if you are a very limited Hall of Fame candidate, or you're really a Hall of Fame candidate that doesn't have a chance to make it or be voted in the Hall of Fame, then you shouldn't be on the ballot. And that goes for a guy like Darren Oliver. And obviously, I'm not here to pick on Darren Oliver. He spent 10 or more years in the major leagues. He was successful for a while. Certainly was never the best player on his team. Certainly was never considered one of the best in the game. But he's eligible to be voted into the Hall of Fame. Now, if you don't want anybody voting for Darren Oliver, then don't put him on the freaking ballot. If you don't want anybody voting for Michael Young, when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame, if you think a vote for Michael Young is a slap in the face of Baseball's Hall of Fame, if you're going to be pissed off if somebody decides to vote for Rick Ankeel because his name's on the ballot, then get his name off the ballot. And in no way would that be taken as any disrespect for those players. I remember Aaron Seeley being on the ballot and getting a vote. It wasn't because that writer thought that Aaron Seeley was a Hall of Famer. It wasn't that that writer thought that Aaron Seeley was right up on the level of anybody else that got voted or could have been voted into the Hall of Fame by the Baseball Writers Association of America. It was that that writer respected the career that Aaron Seeley had. And once again, you don't want these votes to take place. You don't want writers to vote for these players. Take them off the ballot. That's something that I think either will change. If it doesn't change, I got no issue. With anybody that's on the ballot getting a vote. Just a reminder that Castrol provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. Once again, this is the Past Ball Show. Just a reminder, anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unified America, give me a shout. Let me know. Comment on the Facebook Live or Periscope feed. Or if you're listening on YouTube or uh, obviously on demand on uh, iTunes or Google Play, just send me a message. I am going to throw out a trivia question, and I'll throw the trivia question out now. And the first person to respond with the correct answer, um, I will mail you a $10 uh, Visa gift card for getting the question right. And one of the things that I want to try to do when it comes to trivia questions is not to stump you, but I also want to ask questions that are very difficult to look up. In other words, if I ask a question in these exact words, I don't want you to go on Google, type that in, and have the answer come up. So this one will be the first of a series of deep questions that I will ask. And if we get good interaction with this, we'll keep the trivia 
uh, process and part of the show go. So in Major League Baseball history, there have been 17 managers that have managed in the World Series for two different teams. Now try to make sure that you follow me as I'm talking about this, because I'm not talking about World Series winners. And if you're wondering, there are four managers in Major League Baseball history that have won four, one World Series with two or more teams. Now, I'm talking about managers that appeared in a World Series. In other words, you could have won the World Series, you could have lost it. In fact, there are three active Major League managers that have managed in World Series for two or more teams. So out of the 17 that have managed for two different teams in a World Series, there are only two that have managed in three World Series for three different teams. Can you name them? So once again, the only two managers in Major League Baseball history to get to the World Series for three different teams. That's three different World Series with three different teams. And there's two of them. So the first person to answer that correctly, whether it's through a comment, whether it's through Twitter, if you want to email me at jrple at gmail.com, that's fine. You can go to johnpielli.com, uh, contact form right on the site, goes right to my email. But the first person to give that correct answer will get a $10 Visa gift card mailed to their house. So thinking about baseball and its history, and I said there was a couple things that interest me when it comes to 19th century baseball. And I look at the 1899 season as a very interesting year. Because after the 1899 season, the National League went from 12 teams to 8 teams. And there were 4 teams that existed that no longer existed after that year, including the Louisville Colonels, the Cleveland Spiders, the Baltimore Orioles, and the Washington Nationals. They were all eliminated by the National League after the 1899 season. Of course, the American League would start in 1901, just two years later. So you went from having 12 teams in a National League to having a total of 16 teams, 8 teams in the National League, and 8 teams in the American League. And you saw really the first example of what tanking can be in professional sports. You would see it a couple years later in 1902 with the Baltimore Orioles of the American League. And, of course, they were the predecessors to what we now know as the New York Yankees, originally the New York Highlanders. They were actually considered a separate franchise in 1901 and 1902. Uh, John McGraw ends up jumping from the American League to the National League, where he had jumped from the National League to the American League, which, of course, had just started in 1901. The Baltimore Orioles were there for two seasons, and then they be, ended up becoming the New York Yankees. Now, you look at the 1899 season, which I thought was a big turning point in Major League Baseball. And it was, it was showing because of the lack of revenue that the National League, for the first time, was sensing some sort of struggles. If you went back in history, there was the American Association. There was the Players League, which came in uh, 1890. So there was a lot of competition for that of the National League to be supreme baseball in the major leagues. So the National League in 1899 decided to do something that it probably for a couple of years didn't think it was going to have to do, but knew it had to do to survive. 
and that was contract four teams out of the 12 that they had in Major League Baseball. And one of the teams that were contracted was a team called the Cleveland Spiders. And the Cleveland Spiders are going to be known, unfortunately, as the losingest team in baseball history. We want to talk about the 1962 Mets. We want to talk about the 2003 Detroit Tigers, the 1916 Philadelphia Athletics, even the 2018 Baltimore Orioles, amongst some of the worst teams that we've ever seen in baseball history. Now, we want to use 1900. And remember, we're talking about a year. And this being New Year's Day, I thought it would be a good opportunity to bring up a year or a series of time in Major League Baseball history that we don't call modern. You look at the 1800s, obviously being the predecessors to baseball in the major leagues that we see right now, but the 1899 Cleveland Spiders at 20 and 134 were the worst team in baseball history. In fact, there was a list that I posted on Twitter of the top 10 wins leaders in Major League Baseball when it came to pitchers in the National League. You had as many as 28 wins, I think, in the top 10 each of those players and pitchers had 22 or more wins. The Cleveland Spiders for the entire 1899 season had a total of 20 wins. So there were at least 10 pitchers in the National League that won more games individually than the Cleveland Spiders did as an entire team. And obviously when you talk about tanking, obviously there's a lot of things that were going on. Players were being sold. The, thought, the, the understanding was that the Cleveland Spiders were going to be amongst the four teams that were being contracted at the end of the season. So fans probably stopped showing up, similarly to Washington, similarly to Baltimore, similarly to Louisville, who are all franchises and cities that were losing their respective National League baseball team. So Cleveland Spiders, the first at least recorded tank job in a history of professional sports. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability. You'll find a no beer at any cost. Just a reminder, this is the Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Alamish's Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. It's the last topic I wanted to hit up. I wanted to swing back into the sport of professional football. And talk a little bit about a narrative that exists when it comes to one particular quarterback. And obviously in the New York area, New Jersey area, the metropolitan area, Eli Manning can be a polarizing topic when it comes to the New York football giants. Obviously there's a lot of negative things you can say. And pretty much you can say negative things about anybody you want, really. It all depends on your angle. It all depends on where you're coming from. In some cases, it all depends on how much positivity or negativity that you're willing to carry upon yourself when it comes to discussing a player. Now, there's a negative route you could go to Eli Manning, but it's hard to knock some of the things that he has done over the course of his career. He has been an extremely durable quarterback. He has played just about every game for the New York football giants for the past 15-plus years. He has led the team to two Super Bowls. And even if you want to say that his performance in those Super Bowls were not particularly dominant, he did have some incredible performances to get those two teams to the Super Bowls. Now, there may be a time 
It may have been passed already. It may be this offseason. It may be next year. There's going to come a time where the Giants are going to have to move on from Eli Manning. That's going to be one of the more interesting things that are going to be about this offseason. Has that time already come? Is it time that they go draft a quarterback? Is it time for them to perhaps bring a bridge gap type of player? And obviously no pun intended when I'm talking about the likes of Teddy Bridgewater. But that obviously is the type of quarterback you would think to hold the fort for a couple of years. Giants draft a quarterback and down the road they go to prominence. But I do want to make sure that fans, especially the ones that are negative about Eli Manning, the ones that are so insistent on putting the blame of the Giants' struggles and misfortunes over the last couple seasons on Eli Manning. Having a consistent, durable franchise type of quarterback that's going to, when it's all said and done, be amongst the NFL's all-time leaders in passing yards, passing attempts, completions, touchdowns, probably interceptions too, doesn't happen overnight. These things and these quarterbacks don't fall from trees. And sometimes when you're so wishful in regards to turning the page and moving on to somebody else, and you're so anxious to want to move on to somebody else just for the sake of it being somebody different than you're used to seeing on the football field every single day for the last 15 plus years. You may be waiting a while. Ask those in the city of Cleveland what they feel about the amount of different quarterbacks they've seen since they got from wherever they were when they came back and were granted an NFL franchise again to Baker Mayfield this year. Look at the San Francisco 49ers from the days of Steve Young to now with Jimmy Garoppolo. And even with Jimmy Garoppolo, him being on the ACL list and not being able to play for the majority of last season. Ask those teams that don't have a franchise quarterback and fans of those teams that do not have a franchise quarterback what it means or what it could mean to actually have a quarterback that's dependable and durable and is going to be out there calling the shots year in and year out for 15 years. Now the key is, no matter what situation it is, if you had a quarterback for two years and you want to make a change, you had a quarterback for 15 years and you want to make a change, obviously you make a change because the hopes are to get it right. But the Giants, when they moved on from the likes of Phil Simms, in the early part of the 90s, went through guys by the name of Dave Brown and Kent Graham and Danny Cannell. And it took them a while before they got to Eli Manning. And obviously there's going to come a time. It might be this offseason. He might get one more shot with the Giants. And, and you want to know my opinion? You know, I think it's all about the team. So put yourself in a position where you feel you're going to put the best team on the field. Does it include making a change with the quarterback? If it does, so be it. If the Giants moved on from Eli Manning, would I be up in arms over it? No, but I do believe it's one of those examples of you don't really know what you have until he's gone. And I hope if the Giants decide to make a change at the quarterback position, then they get it right. Either bring in a bridge type of player, a quarterback that could be there for a year or two, whether it's a Blake Bortles, whether it's a Teddy Bridgewater, whether it's a, I don't know. I mean, I hope they wouldn't stoop too low to the likes of a Blaine Gabbert, who, by the way, was god-awful 
backing up the Tennessee Titans this season. Just get it right. A little recap of the show today, and I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. Hope everybody's having a happy new year. Um, did throw a trivia question, so if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, want to listen back, be the first one with the correct response, I'll send you or find a way to get you a $10 Visa gift card. Uh, Black Monday, International Football League, six more coaches, and I put up a poll on Twitter. How many of the potential eight coaches, which I put up there, not ca counting, actually counting the likes of Jacksonville with Doug Marone, and I think the other one, who ended up keeping their job? I don't even remember. I lost my train of thought there. But out of the eight head coaches that I saw on hot seat, six of them ended up losing their job. And I said, how many would it be? Five, six, seven, or eight? The answer was six. Adam Gase probably being the biggest surprise. Steve Wilkes, in my opinion, being the most undeserving of losing his job after just one season. Spoke a little bit about the black head coaches that ended up losing their job. There were five, there were seven to start the season. Five of them have lost their jobs. So there's only two black head coaches in the National Football League. Obviously a coincidence, but when race is always thrown out there and put up in the public, it's something that needs to be discussed. It's something that can't go ignored when that happens. Talked about the token Hall of Fame vote. Michael Young getting one from a writer in Texas. I believe in it. I think it's a good idea, or I think it's a good uh, patronage and honor for a player that spent a certain amount of time in a particular city. So I'm in favor of that. If you don't like the fact that somebody that is undeserving of being a Hall of Famer or really undeserving for being under cons serious consideration to be in baseball's Hall of Fame, if that bothers you, the only way to change that is to take those players off the ballot altogether. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Talked about some 1899 uh, National League Baseball, the Cleveland Spiders, worst team in baseball history. The first example of a tank job in any sort of professional sports history. And Eli Manning, you know, sometimes it, you just take a look at what you've had. Maybe it's time to make a change. Maybe it's been time to make a change as a quarterback for the New York Giants. You know, I just hope they get it right. I hope for their sake. You find a quarterback that could be your quarterback for the next 10 years. It's not so easy to do. Be back with you later on in the week. Hope everybody enjoys themselves, enjoys their new year. Obviously, the rhetorics are out there. Oh, it's a new year. You get an opportunity to do some different things. I've said all along, you want to change anything in your life? Just go out there and do it. You don't have to broadcast it to anybody. Just go out there and do it. Hope everybody enjoys their day. Be back with you towards the end of next week. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.